Hello, I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop, and this is the Meet Cute Book Pod. Today we have my chat with author Alexis Hall, who you may know from such hits as Boyfriend Material, Glitterland, A Lady for a Duke, The Winter Bakes All series, and many more. He is a genre queer writer of kissing books who lives in Southeast England with his extensive collection of hats and three angry duck children, subsisting entirely on a diet of tea and Jaffa cakes. He has a degree in very hard sums from a university that should by all rights be fictional and can whip up a passable brownie if pressed. Alexis talks about the experience of revisiting his first published novel 10 years later, why all his historical romances so far are set in the Regency, how he managed to write four books releasing this year, his approach to tone, point of view, narrative perspective, and humor in his writing, the complicated business of writing characters who speak in a variety of dialects, what he takes into consideration when writing sex, and, of course, some books he's loved recently. And now, through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with Alexis Hall. Thank you so much for joining me for this. I am delighted. To start off as a basic question, your Instagram bio describes you as a genre queer writer of kissing books. What does that mean to you? It's sort of a... Something that's quite important to me is working within what I at least personally perceive as somewhat denigrated modes of fiction. Um, like, um, you know, I very specifically write genre fiction, and I tend to gravitate towards um, the kinds of genres that some people look down on, um, which is why I write romance fantasy a lot. Um, and I obviously write LGBTQ plus fiction, um, and I just feel that genre queer writer of kissing books is a sort of a slightly flippant, slightly self-deprecating way of expressing that, that I write LGBTQ plus fiction with a strong genre bentum, as I'm sure you know, I write across genres because I, I like genres. I think genres are fun, um, but tend to involve kissing, hence kissing books. So you've been a published author writing professionally for 10 years and Sourcebooks recently re-released your first published book, I think, Glitterland, with amendments and annotations. What was it like revisiting a, a book that you had written so long ago? Oh, very weird. Like it's, it's I mean, it's it's you know, it's, it's the literary equivalent of one of those you want to feel old memes, you know. Um, <laughs> like discovering that Viggo Mortensen is now the same age that um, uh, Ian McKellen was when he played Gandalf. Oh, um, no. I know. Like it was a really interesting experience because uh, it's been ten years, and suddenly you have to look back and think about think back into the mindset you were in those days and it's um, uh, it's uh, so it's another way is like you you know how sometimes if you go back to like a place you haven't been in a very long time and there's this sort of this very doubled kind of familiarity alienation you get with it mm -hmm. where um like it's 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 simultaneously like you've never left but also like you were never there so yeah we're, sorry that's probably not a not a terribly enlightening answer so yeah weird <laughs> weird and kind of like going back to like your old school or something and was it satisfying to get to talk about it in the annotations and like change little things? That's uh, so I'm very much the opinion that books are kind of of a time and place. I think one of the three difficult things about being a published author for 10 years, which means I'm old now. Um, and um, so all my cultural touchstones are slightly kind of a generation out of date. Because um, like, do you remember when like the big thing in like cinema was like director's cuts? 
Mm-hmm. And like I think there was a there there was a phase in like kind of you know, early 2000s, 2010s-ish, where there was this idea that a movie that released in the cinema wasn't the real movie, and that like there was this idealized version that was the director's cut, that was the director's pure and true vision, um, that would be realized at a later date. Like you know, I think like I think George Lucas kind of essentially kind of um, propagated that to a bit, um, and that's kind of not something I believe. Like I'm very much light of the opinion that the text is what it is something i would absolutely highlight to anyone who already owns a copy of little land who is on a limited book budget doesn't particularly want a you know, new shop new shiny copy with a pretty cover and some entirely optional like bonus content is that like the changes are incredibly minor it's mostly just flow stuff um there's like one scene that i extended because back when i started writing um there was a very strong feeling in my publisher that like a, a romance shouldn't have anything that's not about the primary couple um so there are you know like there's like one scene where i've extended a bit of like friend interaction but um it's not huge um but it's not like i don't want to give the impression that this version is like the definitive version or the true version it's a, it's a slightly cleaned up version but like the version i wrote then was the version i intended to write it's not like i accidentally slipped and fell and wrote something else it was it was fun to go back to it. Um, I, I mean, I think the most fun bit actually, in some ways, was writing like the first chapter of a Rick Glass novel. Um, because because I'm I'm puerile basically. I'm just very very puerile, and I like doing silly stuff like that. But it was really good to go back to that world in that series. So you have been writing for a full decade. Have you noticed any themes in your writing, ideas, or questions that you sort of like keep coming back to? Oh god, that's <laughs> that's one of those odd ones where like that feels like. I can't tell whether talking about themes in one's own writing is self-aggrandizing or damning, um, because you say, "Oh yes, I have like have these themes that I'm very much exploring through my work." It sounds a bit <laughs> up yourself, but if you then the other way to frame it, see, I just I just keep circling back to the same ideas again and again and again. I have a lot of food scenes. Um, like, is, 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 is a thing that people notice. Um, I often write quite complicated parental relationships. Um, I. I have a tendency to, and this is um, I'm a professional word user, so I try to be quite careful with my language. I tend to like writing unsympathetic or complicated protagonists. I like the, um, I sometimes express it in an oversimplified way as like I like the idea that everybody deserves love, and I think that's a powerful idea. But also, I find the word "deserve" actually a little bit awkward. Um, like I think, um, I think talking about what people deserve is kind of meaningless. I don't think like that's arbitrary. You know people that intrinsically deserve or not deserve things um but i think i think people who feel they are undeserving of love and come to overcome that feeling is a thing i come back to a lot it's why a lot of my protagonists are dickheads um and if they aren't a dickhead then quite often the romantic interest is a dickhead which you know itself that goes to some complicated places i'm sure um oh dear um it's it gets very difficult because one doesn't want to overanalyze oneself, I think. No, let's talk <laughs> instead about, instead of constant themes, what about things that have shifted? Like what is catching your interest now? Oh, good Lord. I mean, so I'm I'm very, very uh, flighty is the word I would use. I'm very, very flighty, very, very kind of um, easily distracted, I think. Um, so what's catching my, atten- my interest right now is kind of whatever's happening right now whatever i'm seeing right now whatever i'm thinking about right now and that's um that genuinely can vary day to day like you're currently rewatching succession for example so i'm thinking about that quite a lot 
um you know there's a whole lot of like modern geopolitics shit that's kind of playing on my mind at the moment because uh, there's a lot of that going on so yeah i'm kind of just thinking about the last thing i saw or the last thing i read kind of constantly so you've got four books out this year yes. um two of them are historicals and you also had a historical as part of a different series out last year yes um did you always want to write historicals I mean, basically, yes, is the, is the short answer. Uh, short answer, basically, yes. Long answer, depends what you mean by want to. Like, it, it's not like I am, um, it's not like this is like the thing I truly want to do and the other <laughs> stuff was just like filler or something. It's, um, I've always, I've always wanted to do a bit of everything. I've always really loved historicals because like, yes, pretty dresses, pretty dresses are cool. It's been difficult um, for a number of reasons, partly because, um, so I've been doing this for 10 years. And something I fought very hard for from the beginning was to not just to not have a brand, which was a, a an excellent way to, to to launch a career. I kind of tried to, from the very beginning, establish myself as someone who would work in a lot of genres, do a lot of different things. Um, but that only works to a degree, and there is like you can't you can't do 10 books that are in 10 different subgenres. that really does tank you so i did have to pace myself a little bit um and so i've been kind of throwing around like historical ideas for a very very long time um and it's kind of never quite come together um i think it's a i think it's a complicated concatenation of things in that partly um particularly with uh, historical romance there was for a long time a perception that historical romance is one of the more conservative romance subgenres mm-hmm. um and there are you know i have there are quite famous quotes by quite famous authors uh to the extent that they like kind of don't like the idea of lgbtq plus people or people of color for that matter in um as protagonists in romance novels because in historical romance novels because um because part of the definition of genre romance is it needs to have a happy ending and they just cannot imagine a person who isn't a heterosexual white woman having a happy ending in a historical society Oof. and that <laughs> I disagree with, funnily enough. Um, that goes to some complex places. I um, I think people have a tendency to be willing, when people are writing historical things, I think people have a tendency to be willing to overlook historical oppressions that would have affected them and less willing to overlook historical oppressions that would affect, that might affect other people. Um, like you see it, you see it similarly with, with like your historically accurate sexism in fantasy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so, um, so that was part of the challenge of positioning a, a historical romance that worked within my preferred style of writing um and of course the other thing is bridgerton so it's, it's genuinely got to the stage where people who are outside of like romland i've genuinely heard the word bridgerton used as a sort of a a generic genre label for histrom people like specifically say like oh this is a bridgerton thing and you're like oh, i mean yes but also no <laughs> yeah well uh, we get i mean all of the Basically, any Regency romance that comes out is getting pitched as like, it's just like Bridgerton. They can't all be just like Bridgerton. Like Bridgerton. No, like Bridgerton is a very specific thing. Um, I mean, one of the things that's particularly complex with that, of course, is that like, if you're a fan of the TV show, then to some extent, the Bridgerton books aren't that much like Bridgerton. And that's one of those complicated ones. Like, I think one of the things that's difficult about any of them I started off talking about is big fan of genres, love genres. But I think it's also really important to recognize that genres are arbitrary. Genres are made up to sell books. And particularly working in romance, that's complicated because again, romance is, very, is a denigrated genre. I would argue still a denigrated genre. I think it's, um, you occasionally get like think pieces called things like how Gen Z made romance cool, which is sort of simultaneously affirming and also a bit of a slap in the face to everyone that's been like, you know, 
reading and loving that genre for fucking decades. So obviously, particularly romance as a genre is incredibly important to a lot of people. But also, there is uh, a need to... I think there is a need to acknowledge that the genres are a little bit arbitrary. Um, and one of the things you do notice is, that, yes, when a when a thing gets popular, people sell everything as being like that thing. You, know, you had it with um, with Fifty, and suddenly all erotic romance was basically being packaged as if it was Fifty. You have it with um, with rom com, and like kind of all contemporary romance gets packaged as rom com. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, now basically all history is getting packaged as British. And something I'm probably overly paranoid about is giving readers false expectations. Mm-hmm. People will like or dislike a book partly depending on what they were expecting it to be, which is unfair and not something that the author has any control over. But I I see it happening all the time. No, it's I mean it's a, it's a really complex one because it's simultaneously like as an author one feels it's very unfair, but as a reader I've sometimes had like kind of oh this book was not what I expected and that kind mm-hmm. of makes me feel bad. Um, and it's again it's particular if you are writing about marginalized people that like the stakes on that are elevated. You know if you are a woman for whom romance has a genre written by women for women is very important to you then reading a romance novel that doesn't match your expectations of what romance should be i'm sure that can be a painful experience um simply if you are an lgbtqia plus person and you are reading lgbtqia plus fiction and it doesn't reflect your experiences or doesn't speak to you in the way that you've maybe been told it will speak to you that can be a profoundly harmful experience um and that's like that is a responsibility i take seriously while also having to maintain a sense of perspective on and that's um um because like you know you can't let that get to in your head but also um these things do matter um i think in terms of reader expectation of historical in particular i think um one of things i found really interesting actually is that um like responses to something something or uh, you know, to, to something fabulous and to something spectacular kind of i think weirdly changed once i have more than one historical out because uh, as, as as you've said like Every historical is packaged as British, and, and there is this tendency to sort of, particularly in this milieu, to sell everything as if it's kind of the same thing. Like, I am very aware that the Something Something series is doing something a little bit unusual, arguably within historical, in that it is like it is really steering hard into being self consciously anachronistic. Like, it, it gives zero fucks. I think something I've mentioned a lot is that my single favorite like review tagline from that series is I believe someone referred to it as a, a glorious shit post of a book. And you know, it is it is intentionally joyously silly. It is intentionally joyously really not caring about historicity in basically any way. And I think a lot of people looked at that and were like kind of, well this person just doesn't know how to write a historical. Um and obviously um a lady for Duke is a lot more of a traditional history in that regard. It's got a lot more kind of, you know, actual details about Waterloo and things um, and a lot more kind of, you know, making sure the dresses are right um, and people not using quite as much self-consciously anachronistic language like all the time. Um, and I think once <laughs> once people had seen that that was a thing I could also do, I think they were more willing to um, like read intentionality into the Something Something series. That's so interesting. It feels clear to me from reading it that it is it, it was on purpose. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's an odd one. Um, I think I think it's even like a, an author's note at the beginning saying like yeah. this is self consciously anachronistic um, because I was aware that people would be like this is weird. So you have those two, and then Mortal Follies, which is coming out in June, is a mm-hmm. historical fantasy, but also set in the Regency. Yes. How have you approached researching and world building for three sort of parallel Regencies? Interesting. Um, so, 
I don't like talking about research. Uh, again, I'm, I'm really, really paranoid about saying coming off self-aggrandizing, but I think particularly like, you know, I am not a historian. I am not um, a specialist or an expert. Um, like I don't do anything special that a regular person couldn't do. And as a kind of specifically said like you know the something something series is deliberately and self-consciously anachronistic it's not supposed to be accurate so to some extent like kind of whatever research i did there was partly just for stuff to play with and i would absolutely never recommend anybody learn history from my books that would be weird learn history from historians i'm very i'm, I'm flighty as i think i said at the start i um I jump around topic to topic a lot, and I like learning about stuff. So I, I, me, I read books about history, and I, uh, I think the important thing to recognise is that when I'm doing research for a historical book, what I will do is I will find a bit of the history that I find interesting, and I will kind of, I will sometimes skim it, I will sometimes deep dive it, I will sometimes read whole books about it, I will sometimes, you know, quickly Google it just to make sure I've got like you know, times and places and dates right. I will, you know, sometimes look at kind of actual period documents to get a sense of how people were like, you know, what people were doing in Bath and what the like you know, what the the rules were at the assembly rooms. I'll sometimes check out fashion plates for what kind of um like styles of dresses people were wearing. Um, I'm one of the things I try to be, I'm occasionally a little bit anal about is like you know you don't want to you don't want to put an eighteen sixteen dress on an eighteen fourteen character. That would be oh, absurd. God forbid. I know. Um, but also please don't learn history from my books. Um, like and I'm I'm very very conscious of the um like the use of historicity. As, as a means of validating fiction or as a means of or as a means of invalidating fiction and like i think none of these books are really about the regency they are set in the regency um they sometimes reference specific things that happened in the regency and sometimes don't but i'm very much of the opinion that books are about the time they're written in like you know julius caesar is primarily about elizabethan england it's not mm -hmm. really particularly about Rome. I think there's a reference to a clock in it. And, you know, my books are really about the world I live in. It's like, see, secretly, spoiler, they're not really, you know, I'm not, I'm partly because like, what would be, I think one could, if one wanted to, genuinely try and write a book about the past in the style of the books of the past, trying to get into the mindset of audiences of the past. But I, and I think it would be, maybe it'd be an interesting intellectual exercise, but I don't think it would be particularly meaningful to a modern audience. You know, because I, I'm not from the early 19th century and neither are my readers. Most of them, at least. Most of them. <laughs> The Regency is sort of a fabled genre romance era, but what is it about the Regency that ended up having all three series set there? I mean, part of it is because they are three very different series. Um, that, as you say, the Regency is a, a fabled genre romance setting, and it's um, so it's so part of it is it's kind of the default setting, and particularly when you're um, something I talk about a lot. Um, particularly somebody who writes LGBTQ plus fiction, is I talk about um, what I tend to refer to as the one but rule, which is to say um, when you are writing, when you're pitching a book. And you, if you want people to pick it up, this is my my own slightly pretentious name for a very well well documented phenomenon. It's that's like you kind of have to be able to describe it as it's like this popular thing, but this. And first of all, when you're writing LGBTQ plus fiction, your butt's kind of already taken care of a lot of the time. Not always, um, because as that type of fiction has become more mainstream, you're actually able to say it's like this existing LGBT thing, but different in this way that isn't that it's got gay people in it. But in general, when you because this, these these were these three things because they're all slightly different, were all kind of my first forays into doing historical. I think I wanted to go for kind of a legitimizing setting with all of them, and I think particularly like for each one, there's kind of a there's a slightly more specific reason than that. But that's the general. I mean, to, to go briefly, slightly more specific for something something, it's so 
bonkers that it needed to be in a familiar setting. And also it was genuinely the first histrom I got out there. So I went for the default histrom setting. For A Lady for a Duke, um, this one gets complicated. I tried, when people ask me what I'm doing with A Lady for a Duke, I try to be very, very clear. Because what, something I said earlier in the interview is that if you are a marginalized person, particularly if you're a trans person, not feeling represented by something that's trying that is purporting to represent you can feel quite hurtful. And that's not an experience I want people to have with my books. So I try to be very clear what I'm doing with A Lady for a Duke. And what I wanted A Lady for a Duke to be was a completely traditional historical romance novel which affirms that trans women are women. And that is the only thing I would claim it does. I've had longer conversations where I've talked about kind of um, something I think quite strongly about public discourse is that the way to win arguments isn't to have arguments, it's to have the next argument that assumes you won the previous argument. And part of what I'm trying to do with Lady for Duke is write a book in which there is a trans woman and she's just a woman um, and she does all the stuff that women do in those books. And that meant that I very consciously picked a very, very, very traditional setting for that book. So it is set in the Regency. It has a Duke. It has all of the beats that those kinds of books have, because it's about affirming by never questioning that a trans woman can be part of that and that that isn't taking something away from or threatening or undermining cis womanhood. It's just like fucking normal. And for Mortal Follies, um, that was the one that I did actually start after Bridgerton became a thing. So that was very consciously, what if Bridgerton, but magic? Sold, would buy, sounds delightful. Exactly. Um, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> um, and like, I, think, I think I'll also say that I do also genuinely, like, I think... I think the other thing I say about the Regency is that um, I think I sort of find the Regency second level fascinating because it's simultaneously so big in, in genre fiction, um, almost exclusively because of Austin, as far as I can tell. Um, but maybe not. But there's a bunch of stuff going on. But like, Austin and Shaft, there's a Napoleonic era as well, isn't there? Um, if you go outside of romance. But it's actually like the actual, actual Regency is like six years. It's like 1814 to 1820. If you're being, I know, I will admit this is being a little bit like kind of a little bit nitpicky about terminology because obviously, like George III had his issues for a while and probably wasn't much in control of anything for a while. But, you know, Prince George was formally appointed to the Prince Regent in 1814. That ended in uh, 1820. And so that that's the Regency. It's six years. And it's sort of, it's fascinating to me that this tiny, tiny, tiny fragment of history, especially because, you know, most. Regency romances are about the ton. So this tiny, tiny fragment of history and this tiny, tiny group of people is such a, a huge thing. Um, it is also genuinely a, a really interesting time um, because you're you're just at the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, like not quite like you're um like not you know, we're not into the Victorian. So like we're pre-Victorian. But we're post-American Revolution, we're post-French Revolution. So there is a lot of social upheaval, there's a lot of cultural upheaval. We're about seven years out from um, Britain formally abolishing the slave trade, but well away from Britain kind of actually abolishing slavery in the empire, which is a completely different thing. That's decades down the line. The Corn Laws happen like kind of in the middle of it. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the Regency that isn't pretty dresses um oh and of course i'm um, like napoleon like kind of gets defeated like the very beginning and then kind of comes back for like a like a season two cameo um like it's just yeah it has there's so much 
going on with um with, with the regency it's a genuinely fascinating period and the more you look into it the more you realize that holy crap there's a lot of shit going on and obviously then more follies you then throw magic on top of that and that's fun because you get to look at you get go into weird deep dives but like, but like part of the um like the base like the basic so the, the core inspiration for that was knowing that bath curse tablets were a thing basically and wanted to do something with regency bath and curse tablets because yeah, history is fun and complex and interconnected. Um, and I am not an expert and you shouldn't learn it from my books. So you have four books out this year. You have Glitterland, which was a re-release, but still presumably required you to do, you know, some work. Yeah. Um, you had Something Spectacular, which just came out, Mortal Follies, which is coming out in June, and 10 Things That Never Happened, which is in the boyfriend material world that comes out this fall. You keep a blog. You write Goodreads reviews, which I personally find very helpful. And you are also piloting a Discord as like a Twitter alternative. And you have another job. How? 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 Uh, by accident, basically. I mean, so like the day job I have way scaled back on. Like I started working from home over lockdown. I've cut down my hours a lot. And probably my intent is to like genuinely can that as long as the um, uh, once the like the the writing is once, I, once I've stopped being terrified that the writing is going to go away overnight, which is a thing that I think everyone who works in the creative industry gets to some extent. The blog I have actually put on hiatus. Um, I, so sort of, I, I, you might have noticed that I've actually kind of unpublished it because I didn't like having it hanging there as a thing that I never update um, because it was getting, I was going to like, oh, I should be updating stuff for the blog, but I, uh, I've got this stuff to do and it's, it's just getting really in my head. Other than that, um, I want to make really clear that this is not an aspirational situation. This is not something I am doing because I have like a great work ethic. Um, I, to some extent, have a problem with the concept of work ethics. Like, I mean, like that goes to some interesting class places. Um, like the reason that, like, the reason I have wound up like this is because in about 2020, one of my books got more popular than my books had previously been, and that meant that I went from being in a position where I was sending out like five or six submissions and getting four or five rejections to being in a position where I was sending out four or five submissions and getting four or five acceptances and also someone else saying, hey, will you do this for us? We'd like to work with you. Um, and because I am concerned about things going away overnight, um, because, you know, audiences are fickle, markets are complex, um, yeah, things change. And like, yeah, this is... Yeah, this isn't a salaried gig. Um, I was like, well, I should probably say yes to all of this. And that, uh, I don't think it was a mistake, but I do think it has had consequences that I am now dealing with. Um, so I kind of I kind of don't have social life. Um, as, as I say, my sleep patterns are completely screwed. Like I, I, I kind of don't really sleep that much or that sensibly. Um, I, this isn't... Like the the thing I'm most concerned about is people seeing it as aspirational. Um, and there are, yeah, I think, I think there are genuinely writers who do genuinely have a really high output that is kind of actually a, a stable working thing for them. But that's not that's not where I am. Like I want to be writing fewer books. I just also want to, you know, have an income, and that meant not wanting to look gift horses in the mouth when suddenly about six different gift horses showed up. Do you have any like good strategies for managing to avoid burnout? I, 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 not really. I think, um, I think I have a general principle that you can do most things as long as you know they're finite. Um, and yeah, that's as always. That's going to be that's not going to be true for everyone. But that's how I tend to 
tend to to go. I don't know how I tend to position myself. I think so. I think just kind of knowing that once I've got through this chunk of things, I can take a bit of a breather is kind of keeping me stable at the moment. But it's it, it is difficult. Um, I you know I don't have strategies to stop it getting on top of me because it does sometimes get a bit on top of me. And I think it's you know it would be I think misleading and disingenuous to suggest that it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I think that's personal. That's personally relatable, at least. So, I want to talk a little bit about the writing in your books. The tone in your book shifts really significantly. I, I think from one to another, you have some books that are much lighter rom coms like boyfriend material, and then you have this delightful sort of paranormal detective series that's very noir, um, Kate Kane, and mm-hmm. then you have A Lady for a Duke, which feels quieter, maybe, but still has humor in it, um, and they all have an underlying sort of consistency of voice, but they are distinct. How do you sort of hop around? How do you find the voice or the tone of a new a new project that you're working on? That's one of those really difficult, like kind of you just kind of do it question, which I is another the kind that's the kind of answer I hate to give because I hate being mystifying. I hate things that suggest that the process cannot be explained. But I do think that's something you just kind of have to feel your way through. And some of it's something so I write in genres. And so a lot of it is just kind of I'm so for example, has got quite a noir tone. I've watched a lot of noir, read a certain amount of hard world fiction. Um, and you can kind of internalize that. Um similarly, Lady for Duke is very consciously inspired by very specific classic historical romances of the late 20th, early 21st century. Boyfriend material is, the tone of boyfriend material is kind of the tone of a, a Richard Curtis movie, um, which I now I say it loud, it sounds like I'm saying I just nick it from people, which is not, I'm, and to an extent, like, you know, great artists steal and all that, but um, I think having touchstones in your head that you can kind of go to for roughly how you want it to sound is I think about right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So in addition to picking sort of like the overall tone or language, what do you take into consideration when you're thinking about whose point of view the story or points of view the story will be from? And do you want this to be first person narration, third person narration? So it'll it'll sometimes be sometimes it's a, it's a matter of pure genre convention. Um, so again, if you're writing something in a noir style, that sort of it's a, it's a funny one actually because um like there's a uh, the Kate Kane books are written in first person because there there's something about first person narration that feels noir. I think because we kind of associate voiceovers with noir cinema, even though actually you read for example a lot of um Dashiell Hammett, that's usually written in third person. Um, like Molly Falcon is written in third person. It depends on the relationship I want the reader to have with the character um there are some characters uh, and to the like the relationship i want the reader to have with the the text actually a really good example is it might be the um uh, so in the in the uh, baking series there's a starts with rosalind palm takes cake um and goes on from there i kind of consciously wanted that to almost feel like you're watching an episode of a reality tv show so it's done in third person it's on third person but a slightly less close pov than I would normally do third-person narration. Uh, the, the Boyfriend Material series, that's done in first person. I'm not necessarily going to keep that up. I will almost certainly keep that throughout the whole series, but I'm not going to like wed myself to that. Um, notably, actually, um, I think there's samples you can already see this in. I've specifically done 10 Things That Never Happened in uh, first person and present tense because it felt right for the the like the way I wanted that story to be told. I wanted it to have more of a sense of immediacy. 
So when you're calibrating or figuring out how you're telling a news story, how do you think about humor as an element of that? And how do you figure out how much or what kind of humor you want to fit into that narrative? So again, partly it's going to be genre touchstones. Like if I'm writing a, and although again, this, this becomes a complex one, so one of the things we talked about was everything's kind of getting sold as Bridgerton these days. And like um, when rom-com got big, there was this kind of everything's being sold as rom-com thing. But if I'm writing a rom-com, I kind of want it to feel like a, like a romantic comedy, like a, um, you know, like a you know, Hugh Grant Richard Curtis type thing. So I want it to be like actively kind of comedy level funny. If I'm writing a more traditional histrom, um, then I might want some elements of humor in it. I think levity is nice. I think being you know, relentlessly grimdark all the time isn't particularly enjoyable. And having some, I mean, comic relief seems such a basic way to put it, but basically, but you do want elements of levity in text. Like there are some of my series that I think definitely have a like deliberate whimsy too. Like um like you know Kate Kane series has like elements of deliberate quite dark comedy to it. Um the something something series again it's like that is sort of deliberately set in an exaggeratedly comedic world. Other series are more grounded but have some some funny elements. It's it's about playing it by ear. It's about mental touchstones is a, a phrase that I'm pulling off the top of my head right now that I think is possibly possibly useful. Again, go back to um, uh, the baking series like that. The humor in that is kind of on the level of the humor you get in reality TV shows, um, particularly particular the kind of British reality TV show where you'll often have a slightly detached narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have better reality TV than we do, I think. It's different, at least. It's it's interesting. It's like because it's, a lot of it's franchised, like, and so I think a lot of it is because like like the um like like the Idol series, and I think the um the X has got talent series. I think we exported to you. Like I like Simon Simon Cowles over there, isn't he? Yeah, you exported a whole person. Yeah, we, yeah, um, and I think I think we imported the Apprentice from you. Well, obviously, the Apprentice has difficult difficult connotations now for Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, Shark Tank in this country, Dragons Den. I think that's actually a Japanese import. It's called Dragon's Den there? In, in the UK, it's called Dragon's Den, yeah. Huh. Do you not Dra- have sharks? I, I, I don't know. I think, I, I, I think Dragon's Den is cooler, personally. I think also, like, <laughs> like dragons have a wealth connotation, which sharks don't. That's true. Like, why would you go into it? Like, there's nothing in a shark tank apart from a shark. Yeah, maybe they just wanted our version to sound uh, meaner. It might, it might also genuinely be a... Um, uh, Copyright. A copyright thing or trademark thing, like um, like like um, the reason that um, the Great British Baking Show is called the Great British Baking Show in America is because Bake Off is someone's registered trademark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. So you also have an ability to really deftly sketch a character that feels real in very little sort of real estate on a page, which feels like you have to therefore sort of know who that person is really well. Do you have favorite ways of getting to know characters as you're writing? I think I mean, one thinks about one's characters. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't. I feel really bad for not having tricks um, because I feel like people tune into this kind of thing. They're like, "Oh, I want a trick for how to do this," um, and there isn't really one apart from um, just kind of you know, thinking authentically. I suppose having a sense of where this person's coming from. I think one of the things that um, oh, I'm a, so the slight uh, this isn't a trick. This is a thing that I occasionally get asked about names and why characters are called certain things. And very often when I'm naming a character, I will very specifically, and this this comes back to the thing we were saying earlier about, about themes and stuff I go back to. Um, very often if I'm naming a character, for example, my go-to thought will be, what sort of people were this person's parents and therefore what sort of name will they have given them? Like, um, you know, like, like Arden St. Ives is... <laughs> 
Mueller is the kind of person who's got to look at Arvinson's hives. Um, you know, Luke O'Donnell has a um, French first name and an Irish surname and is very specifically uses his mother's surname, not his father's and so on. And, and so on and so forth and so forth. Um, and it's, it's, it's little things like that. Um, in terms of getting characters across very quickly on page, I think that's one thing that is much easier to do in a comic setting because you can exaggerate stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the advantages of humour is you can give someone a like, really obvious kind of tick or tell or hook the people can which again when you say about oh, that sounds really artificial but it's it's a thing because like you say limited real estate you've got to get quite a large cast of characters across very fast i mean there's a, a shorthand i guess and then you can sort of fill them in backwards as, as exactly. it goes on i am interested in the question of writing in dialects which pops up periodically in your books it pops up in glitterland it pops up in rosalind palmer takes the cake which is one of the bake-off baking show books what is your sort of goal in transcribing speech in the way that you're doing? Like, what what are you trying to get across? What are you thinking about in the ways that you're transcribing it? This could go on for a very long time because this is a really complex topic. So there's actually two things here, one of which is writing in dialect and the other of which is uh, transcribing dialect because those are slightly different things. Um, in terms of writing in dialect, um, 10 things that never happened. The narrator's a scouser. It's written as best I can in a quite a strongly liverpudly in dialect. I care very strongly about linguistic diversity. I care very strongly about one of the things that's really difficult um, about writing about Britishness to a primarily American audience is that Americans have, I think, a very fixed idea of what being British means. And it's really important to me that actually British means a whole lot more than that. Particularly, like when you, like when you say a British accent to an American, they mean something, they mean an RP accent. They like, mm-hmm. they, or they assume you mean an RP accent, they have an accent like the one that I use by default because. Yeah, it was the accent I was taught to have. But the the notion that one way of speaking is superior to another way of speaking when it's your fucking native language is both classist and racist. Um, it's not a good thing to support. Um, so I do try to incorporate characters who speak in a variety of different dialects um, as a way of reflecting those characters and those cultures as best I understand them. And to do so in a way that I hope comes across as validating and respectful rather than as dismissive. And that is really tricky. Like, um, like I think the, the, like the way I wrote dialects in Glitterland was probably the most extreme transcribing of dialect that I've done. Like, actually, I think the, um, the Glitterland versus Rosalind Palmer things are a really interesting comparison. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm now saying that things about my books are really interesting. So the thing about Glitterland is because it's very embedded in Ash's perspective. And Ash ultimately was raised in a culture that says certain ways of talking are just wrong. And therefore, the transcription of Darian's dialect is very, like it focuses on pretty much every deviation from standard pronunciation, um, which is something I usually don't do when I'm writing dialect. One of the things that's, um, sorry, sorry, this is a bit of a can of worms. There's a whole lot of complicated politics with this, where um, one of the things that's really difficult about transcribing dialect is that English is not a phonetically spelt language. I mean, it can't be because like there are, there are, there's there's a saying that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, and there are, you know, quite large countries with armies and navies, all of whom have English as like their native language. But it means that when you transcribe somebody's dialect, you are effectively saying that their way of pronouncing words isn't the default. Mm Mm-hmm. 
which is awkward. So dialect blurs into idiolect blurs into accent in a bunch of complicated ways. When it's just dialectal terms, like just words that appear in a dialect that don't appear in, in standard English, that's very straightforward. Like you just, you just write the word. When it is a non-standard pronunciation, that becomes more complicated because most English words, I say mostly, that's a generalization, okay? quite a lot of English words aren't actually pronounced anything like they're written. And there are some, there's some really simple examples of this. Like uh, if you're writing someone from the North, there's no really standard way to transcribe the fact that Northern people use a short A um, in, in, in what we call short A. It's like, I can never tell whether the American, I think the American A sound is different from both the British long A and the British short A, but like you can't really transcribe the bath-bath distinction. Like that's just not a distinction that, that makes, that you could put on page without doing like some kind of diacritic mark. But then there are variations in pronunciation that tend to get transcribed when they are delivered in certain dialects, but not in others. And that goes to difficult places. So I'm in uh, Rosalind Pamplet's Gate, for example. I made a quite conscious decision to have Harry's speech spell the word my M-Y, even though Harry definitely says me, like mm. talking to my brother, that kind of thing. But I think, and I could be wrong about this, but my the reason I made that choice is that actually vowel sounds are kind of ambiguous. And actually, if you're gonna say, you know, I'm gonna go see my mum, like the the my in that is like it's a me, it's a m, it's a m. It's a, it's a, it's an ambiguous vowel sound. It's probably a schwa. And therefore, I think the most authentic way to write to transcribe that speech is just to write the fucking word my, which is the word they are saying, and not try to communicate that they have that they happen to have pronounced it in a way that isn't posh a really really good example of this is um is a gunner everyone says gunner um there are recordings of david fucking cameron saying gunner but when you look at the transcriptions of those recordings it's transcribed as going to because david cameron is a posh man same with same with um uh, boris johnson if boris johnson is giving a speech where about brexit where he says kind of and it's going to be difficult but they're going to do it anyway um sorry that's my really bad boris johnson impression that will be transcribed as it's going to be difficult because boris johnson you know is a posh man who went to eat and so obviously he wouldn't have used a slang word but he does he does say gunner because everyone says gunner because like it's just it's just a natural feature of how language works similarly same with me versus my i don't think every person with an rp accent always says my pronouncing the y correctly and so that's that's the line i tried to walk there it's between making it clear that this person is using a dialect and has an accent while also not trying to reinforce the norm that words written down must imply that those words are pronounced in uh, the prestige way um i think i think i can't remember it's been a while since i've looked at the actual text of Rosal. i think i did something similar with h where i didn't um i didn't signal h dropping again harry would almost certainly drop his h's he'd almost certainly call himself harry but H dropping is it used to be part of prestige pronunciation. It used to be considered very vulgar in British English to say a hotel and not any hotel. But when people say, and you'll see in, in like texts from the early 20th century, you'll see people writing any hotel, but they'll spell hotel with an H because it is just kind of, it is understood that the correct pronunciation of the word hotel is hotel and that one should not ever aspirate one, one H's. There's like a theory that the when Americans are performing Shakespeare, it makes less sense to try to put on sort of an RP 
accent because the original pronunciation at the time would have been closer to what a current American accent is. It's interesting. The whole like thing of British accents as it relates to anything historical is so bizarre. It's like um, it's like when you see Romans in TV shows, like a Roman with an American accent, I think people would, would feel was weird. <laughs> Whereas a Roman with a British, a modern British accent, that's completely normal, obviously. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's, I briefly looked at, looked at uh, it's, it's called OP, as I original pronunciation. Um, I've heard that it's like some states in America. I've heard that it's a bit like Birmingham. But yeah, no, but it's, but it's definitely not. Yeah, Shakespeare definitely did not sound like me and definitely didn't sound like, oh, I was going to say the Queen. Obviously, uh, obviously, the Queen doesn't sound like anything anymore. Doesn't sound like the King. One of the things I find really difficult about, because I'm talking a lot about history and language because it's something I care quite strongly about, um, like the the unthinking way in which we ascribe antiquity and authenticity to essentially to my way of speaking is something I am deeply pissed off about, essentially. Like we fucking shouldn't. I'm also interested in writing sex and sex scenes. And what are you thinking about or taking into consideration when you're thinking through both how much or how sort of explicit of a sex scene to put on the page in any given book? And how do you approach writing those scenes? So, uh, so, so, the, so the how much question um, circles back to the, it's going to be different by genre, it's going to be different by subgenre, it depends on what the expectations of the audience are. So for example, boyfriend material tends to be quite, I, I don't like the heat language, I don't like talking about it being high heat, low heat, I think that goes to some complex places. But having said that, to use that language anyway, like, Boyfriend material sample tends to be seen as quite low heat because it's inspired by romantic comedies, which tend not to have much explicit on on screen sex. In terms of actually writing sex scenes, for me, it's important that sex is a form of characterization. Um, Mm. I try to avoid like there's a like there used to be kind of a running joke in romance that like kind of you just kind of have sex because you've got to that percentage in the book. Like you could you could almost predict if you're a very prolific romance reader where in the book the sex scene would be just by flowing through because it's sort of seen as a, a, a mandatory thing. And for me, it's important that sex is, is characterization. It is a form of interaction between characters and it is supposed to say something. Um, it is supposed to say who those people are, how they are relating to each other, where they both are, although particularly where the primary viewpoint character is in that moment, why they're making the choices they're making, how they are feeling about you know, themselves, their partner, and whatever the, whatever the plot is at the moment. And I, I hope I do that. What is sort of like the, what are the joys of writing a sex scene and what are the challenges there? Oh, blimey. Um, so the challenges are making sure it is communicating character. The joys are also making sure it's communicating character. It's, um, I think I try to avoid thinking of sex scenes as distinct from other scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, a writing a sex scene ideally should be no different from writing a scene where the characters do kind of anything else i mean i mean obviously there are there are logistical issues like you need to make sure that everyone's got the right number of hands yeah in in that regards i think i've I've occasionally said the sex scenes are a bit like fight scenes like because they involve practical issues where they involve a certain amount of physical movement people often ask about like our biggest writing challenges and things and the thing i will always say is that the most the most challenging thing in writing for me is essentially trivial detail it's thing it's the, the example i always give is getting someone to go from standing by a door to go and stand by a window because like what can you say you say you know she went from standing by the door to stand by the window she walked from the door to the window. there's only a finite way number of ways to say it and they all sound a bit crap when you focus on them and in the same way like if there are unique challenges to sex scenes it's that kind of mundane stuff it's that kind of okay like i, I cannot i can only use the word hand or the word tongue so many times in this scene before it starts sounding repetitious which is ironically a very unsexy challenge 
Is there anything that you have been thinking about writing or really wanting to write? Obviously, you don't have to say what it is, but something that scares you or that you haven't like quite figured out how to write yet, but that you're like tinkering with? Not really. And partly because, I, I mean, as, as we've discussed, uh, I have got so much backed up that I really can't. I, I've actually had to like have stop myself tinkering because normally, normally I do tinker a bit. Um, I'll kind of be like, oh, I've got this cool idea. I'll dash down a couple of thousand words, see if it goes anywhere. You know, maybe get my you know, agent to wang it off for someone because, you know, I am low on, but no, at the moment I'm like, what I am scared about is the the many, many books I still have to write this year, essentially. Tinkering hiatus. Yes, I'm, I'm very much on a tinkering hiatus. Before I let you go, could you recommend a book or two that you have read recently and really loved? I absolutely could. Um, obviously, the first thing I'll say is I will direct people to my Goodreads um, because, like, the part of the reason I do Goodreads in the first place is so that I can can remind myself of the, of the books I've read because otherwise I do forget. Uh, so I've just finished reading uh, A Trans Man Walks Into a Gay Bar, which is a really, it's a really moving, really insightful memoir about a gay trans man. It's not a it's it's got it's got painful moments, but it's not a trauma narrative. Like one of the things that's like, I think pretty much every trans biography I've read has opened with like, well, I find it annoying that the only kind of books that trans people are allowed to write is biographies about our sad personal experiences. But that's the reality we live in. So here's mine. Um, and, but it's it's genuinely um, it's insightful. It's moving. Um, it's not actually particularly sad. It's very very smart. It's actually genuinely quite joyous. It's really good. I've also really enjoyed She Is a Haunting, um, which is a it's a queer YA horror about a Vietnamese girl raised in the US. She returns to Vietnam, spends summer with her father, who's a family behind, and they renovate a former French colonial mansion. Uh, it's it's a dark but fascinating uh, piece of horror writing that, funnily enough, has colonialism themes. French colonial mansion, and also because colonialism is you know based into every aspect of every country in the world, because it was a whole big thing for a really long time. Those sound fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time in your very, very busy schedule to chat with me. I really appreciate it. No, that is okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. A huge thank you to Alexis Hall for graciously adding our conversation to an already unreasonable schedule. It was truly a delight. If this conversation has made you want to pick up one or several of his books, you can do that in our shop or on our website, meetcutebookshop.com. A quick programming note. This Saturday, April 29th, is Independent Bookstore Day, and we at Meet Cute Bookshop are celebrating by taking part in the San Diego Book Crawl, which is going to be a blast. It is also going to be rather all-consuming, so this podcast will be taking next week off. With book bans gaining traction across the country, the existence of independent bookstores is more important than ever, and we can't wait to celebrate all our indie bookstore friends around San Diego County and across the U.S. If you live nearby, I hope you join us for the crawl, and if not, I hope you go visit your favorite local indie on Saturday. And that's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and I hope you'll tune back in for more deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing.